This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. I'm Philip C. and this is The Breakfast Grill. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. Brian Wong. He's a geopolitical strategist and advisor uh, on Sino-American relations. Uh, Welcome, Brian. Uh, It's really good to have you here in the studio, all the way from Hong Kong. Thank you very much for having me, Philip. Now, just listening to you, we we can cover so many things, but let's just start with US-Sino relations, because frankly, that dominates nearly our conversations every morning here in the morning run. And I guess the core question in my mind is that, you know, the perspective and the conversation narrative is that between the ch- between China and the United States, there must be always one ultimate victor. You know, can't both powers coexist peacefully? Yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, and I would argue that the most plausible and sensible reading here is that both powers can and should seek to coexist because neither China nor the US is going anywhere anytime soon. You know, China's risen rapidly as an e- into and morphed into an economic powerhouse and superpower over the past 40 years. But America remains by far the dominant military and geosecurity power in the world. And the thought that either of these, you know, great countries in their own right, and both China and America are places for which I'm most fond and a lot of friends in, that these countries would go away or, or decline and be on irrevocable deterioration strikes me as a frankly ludicrous thought. And yet, unfortunately, what we see these days is a surge in, you know, extremists or folks with who are bent on believing, right, that one country can indeed prevail over the other and that there there's strict mutual exclusivity and incompatibility between the interests. That strikes me as a rather perilous thought. Yeah, and I think this is where I, I really am struggling why people have this motivation. It's just this whole fear of insecurity, right? That when someone rises, that their rise bowl is literally taken away. That, I think, seems to be the prevailing thought more in the US side, right? For sure. I guess there's several dimensions to it, and it also cuts across both China and US. The first is the economic, where, frankly, you know, China's rise as a manufacturing power base and also a key source of and key component of global supply chains has come at the expense, in the eyes of many in America, of America's prior dominance as the leading trade and also economic power in the world, despite the fact that, you know, dollar imperialism and a persistence of the US dollar-based order remains, you know, incredibly uh, influential till this very day, right? So there's an anxiety on a part of many in America that the loss of jobs, the dissipation of labor due to mechanization or due to globalization is something that they would attribute and blame on China. But in practice, if we look at the actual economics underlying this, the fact that America has lost jobs in the manufacturing sectors, priority especially the Inflation Reduction Act introduced by Biden, is not so much a result of China's rise as just how the American dollar works, that fundamentally, you know, it is a net importer in virtue of the need to preserve the strength and also the prevalence of dollar in circulation. And this is a Triffin dilemma. So it doesn't matter if it's, you know, China or Mexico or Canada, all these other countries that American imports are now coming from in lieu of China in view of this partial decoupling. But one way or the other, the economic logic that China is stealing America's jobs doesn't quite stack because it's not um, that it's not China doing it. It's American. So the intrinsic design and feature of the American economic logic that's causing them yeah. to amirage jobs, so to speak. So there's an economic and also perceptual uh, dimension there, so to speak. But I think there's also a second dimension, which concerns ideology and values. And that is where I sort of beg to differ from folks who would say that you can reduce everything in Sino-American tensions to just economics and material interests and who's the number one and who's the number two. 
at the end of the day, the Chinese approach to governance, which I would actually argue is a, a small gas board, okay? It's an eclectic mix of, in part, experimentation, in part, grassroots democracies, top-down centralization at the very top, but heavy reliance upon bureaucracy. The contemporary Chinese approach to governance is very distinct from that of America's. And I do not believe that the American model or the Chinese model is intrinsically superior to one or the other. I do not believe in such the Manichaean and binary claims. Mm. But I would nevertheless say, though, is that both peoples, including those in China and also those in America, are coming to the thought or, or with a growing sense of confidence and triumphalism about their own model vis-a-vis the other. And when you have these conflicting values put into the same microcosm, that is, or the quadrant of the world, then it's inevitable that we would see a sort of talk of showdown and existential struggles and threat, even yeah. if such talk, in my opinion, is overblown. And just when listening to you, I mean, the first example about the loss of American jobs, that's perhaps what one can categorize as misplaced blame. But the second point feels a bit more fundamental about, you know, differing value systems, about how that there are kind of different uh, governance models in play uh, between the United States and China. And it got me thinking whether we have a very different interpretation of what it is like to be a superpower, whether, you know, China's view of what it means to be a superpower is very different from how the West thinks about it that way. That is a very astute observation. So interestingly, if you look at the the concept that's expounded by uh, Xi Jinping when he said that, you know, this Xin Shidai Zhongguo Jiao, which is to say this new era, Xin Shidai Daguo Jiao, so great power diplomacy in a new era, it's it's kind of unclear what Daguo actually means or translates mm. to in Chinese, right? Because Da could be a denoting of size. It is an incredibly large power in virtue of its economic and also political magnitude and military prowess. But Da could also be a stand-in for a kind of magnanimity, right? The sort of yeah. openness and willingness to tolerate and accommodate. And that Big-hearted. Is why, big-hearted, exactly. And that's why while superpower is a term, especially when viewed through realist and neorealist uh, schools of thought in Western IR analysis or international relations discussion tends to be a very much power and capacity centered concept, right? So people talk about, you know, how how strong is your military? How expansive is scope of influence? Are you economically and in terms of trade very mighty? And above all, as a superpower, there's the expectation, as you would see in a case of America, that you, you can project, globally speaking, soft power and cultural power. So these are very much capacity centered ways of looking at power mm. from the point of view of the West. But in the case of China, you know, sure, there's definitely that sort of capacity and dominance-oriented and anchored understanding of power, going back to what Xunzi said when it, when it comes to Wang Ba. So the idea of the art of Ba is essentially the art of power and the ability to cower your opponents or to, to, to force them into capitulation and deference towards you. And yet there's also another approach to governance, global governance, so to speak, and the, the, the world order, so to speak, and that is the, the Wang Dao. And that is where you, as a power, as a large power, accomplish substantial influence and become the centre of gravity in global politics, not via force, not via violence, but simply via, you know, adhering to principles of RIN, of value-based transformation and integrity. So what I would posit here is that obviously, you know, Chinese political discourse and parlance does have that strain, right, that is bent upon, you know, dominance just as Western discourses are, but that's not all there is to its understanding. And I think 
think it's imperative when thinking about Belt and Road Initiative and other international projects of China so we don't just see it through pure lenses of dominance, but also through other lenses that China might want at the very least the world to see uh, these projects and initiatives through. I think this whole concept of dominance, we have this whole lens of it being very tangible, very clear cut, right? And that's where I think perhaps we are misplaced because the the China perspective of what dominance is is a bit more subtle, a bit a bit more I perhaps not so clear. But what I think is very keen and keenly observed by you, especially is that for China, while it does demonstrate that economic heft and economic power, it hasn't been doing such a good job on the soft power side, on the cultural power side, right? Where What does it need to do really to take that cultural power to the next level? For sure. And I'll say it on the record here, I do think that China has a pretty substantial <clears throat> soft power deficit, especially amongst uh, members and constituents in the global north, so to speak. And even when it comes to the global south, with which Beijing often touts to be the primary you know, constituency to it, towards which it's pitching right now, its message globally, we see a mixed bag of results and attitudes, right? The recent polls of Southeast Asian countries reveal that, you know, aside from, say, the public's in Malaysia and Singapore, in eight out of the 10 ASEAN countries, uh, disapproval or skepticism towards China has been on the rise since COVID began. And, and that's Southeast Asia, one of the already China, more China-friendly regions, so to speak, despite historical and geopolitical animosity. And similarly, sure, China may cite Latin America and Africa as continents where or regions where it has managed to achieve a sizable improvement in perception and soft power through economic aid, trade diplomacy, and other forms of developmental assistance, um, that is correct to a certain extent, but it also neglects the very fact, right, this argument that there are viable and incredibly potent ideological undercurrents amongst those who share grievances and scepticism towards China. So if I could offer a few very brief recommendations to China, I reckon the first piece of advice is recognize external messaging and externally oriented discourses should not have in mind the domestic audience, right? And when you Mm. conflate the domestic and the external, that's when you inevitably, you know, issue incredibly trenchant, right, and and, and hurly and, and arguably and you know, not particularly pleasantly you know, worded and pugnacious messages. Wolf Warrior, right? for example. Uh, for instance, Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, although I yeah. would actually say that there's more nuance to it than just Wolf Warriorism. Um, it's also about diplomatic trenchantness, resoluteness when it comes to key issues as defined by China and also bargaining tactics, right? So it's not just about being a Wolf Warrior, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's the first comment, which is, you know, don't conflate the domestic and the external audience. It's really important. And the second message is look at recognize the heterogeneity of values, of attitudes and preferences in the world. This is a kind of, you know, the pluralism, right, that Chinese philosophy had always espoused to, to espoused and also advocated that we looked at, the, the concept of being able to seek, you know, unity through difference, right? And that similarly should apply to how China engages with different audiences. You can't use exactly the same message, the same words, the same language when speaking to, say, the Malaysian public vis-a-vis someone living in uh, Kazakhstan, right? And the way or the emphasis really in explaining why the China model and the China models or approaches to governance work should indeed vary in accordance with the needs and also cultural idiosyncrasies and the milieu amongst the people on the ground. So when you only speak with one voice and only let one voice speak, then it's no surprise that folks in a world would find that message incredibly, you know, unappealing and, and also dogmatic. So I'm not saying that these are all China 
China's fault. I mean, many powers in the past and uh, history of the world have struggled with soft power because it's much easier to talk in terms of you know monetary prowess or financial strength, right? Yeah. Circulation in terms of global uh, as a globally denominated currency. Uh, whereas when it comes to soft power, it's far harder to quantify and to measure. And yet, this is precisely what differentiates between you know a regional power. And a great power and a truly global power. And if China wants to be respected and seen as a global power, it needs to start acting like one when it comes to public messaging, communication, and narrating its very own story, so to speak. Let's talk a bit about you know this point about unity through difference. We have this whole perception that China is some homogenous structure that everybody speaks from the same voice. But actually, as you as you were alluding to, the governance structure in China is diverse. Its composition is diverse in nature, and it is a heterogeneous country. For sure, um, and here I would say two quick things. Really, the first is just that we need to be very careful about the relationship between the the, the people, the party. Uh, which possesses, mind you, roughly 96 million okay, party members in China, and finally select or certain leaders that we often enjoy you know, plastering and anchoring all of our analysis on mm-hmm. when it comes to China. Sure, the three of them are highly integrated, right? So don't, don't buy into the narrative that the party is non-representative of the people, given the amount of entanglement, the amount of embeddedness, and also the very fact that a core part of the promotional mechanism for grassroots party cadres is their ability to serve the public's on the ground. And the core promotional metric for technocrats and bureaucrats in the system is whether or not they can deliver for the economy, for the respective bureau and briefs. So don't buy into the argument, right, that the party and the people are separable or separate. In many ways, there are feedback mechanisms that work. They may not be entirely via conventional, traditional, democratic mechanisms, especially when it comes to the mid to the upper tiers. But there is an imperfect but nevertheless resilient feedback mechanism Mm -hmm. that's endured in a country all the way from the beginning of the opening up and era reform era through till this very day. Of course, there ebbs and flows, but I think it's imperative to recognise that. And similarly, it is true that certain senior leaders at certain periods and points in time will have greater influence, will exercise you know, greater push and drive towards centralisation and compliance amongst the rank and file of the party. But by and large, we need to recognise that the party does not represent all there is to the people, and the people cannot be collapsed and reduced into merely a political machine. And similarly, even within the party, we see different different groups of thinking and strands of thought, at the same time often coinciding and coexisting within the same factions. It's not just about factional politics. It's also about different approaches and functional specialisations within the party. Okay, we're going to take a break and take a quick break and we'll come back with Dr. Brian Wong uh, as we continue our conversation on US-China relations. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. Welcome back in the studio with me is Dr. Brian Wong, Assistant Professor at the Department of Philosophy at the University of Hong Kong. He's also author of the recently published The Era of Geopolitics. Now, Brian, you, you frequent Malaysia, but your base is Hong Kong. Tell us a bit about Hong Kong's trajectory in the past few years, right? Give us some tangible examples in which Sino-US tensions have played out in your home city-state. So, uh Hong Kong's a city that's a part of China, but more importantly to me personally, it is my home. It is where I spent over 17 years of my life being brought up in and, you know, 
prior to going to the UK uh, to study in Oxford. So it means a lot to me personally. And the events that have happened and taken to this city over the past few years um, haven't been pleasant. And I would characterize, you know, the, these events as by and large uh, a product, a byproduct of the geopolitical tensions and also the rivalry between China and the US. From the Chinese perspective, the perception that the, the central administration has always had over Hong Kong since its handover is that by and large, provided that what Hong Kong does does not undermine what China takes to be its integral security interests, one country, two systems could be tolerated and permitted to flourish. In fact, there was a desire that it would continue to flourish as a demonstration of China's you know, soft power and also institutional modernization. And yet the events in 2014 and especially 2019 uh, only bolstered and an almost vindicated narrative that had permeated certain parts of the Chinese establishment mm. that Hong Kong would become a hotbed of anti-China secessionist insurrectionist activity. This is the perception from the government, right? We're not you. We agree with it, disagree with it. That's not a matter. But that's the rationale undergirding then many of the more security-oriented measures that have been implemented in a city. Uh, perhaps much to the chagrin of many of those who had wanted and desired the previous way of life and a previous modus vivendi that Hong Kong had had prior to say the events of nineteen and the tumultuousness of all of that, as well as the twenty twenty national security law and what it ensued afterwards. But I guess from Beijing's point of view, the dominant discourse now when it comes to Hong Kong is securitization, with Hong Kong's international status still seen as important and instrumental, but perhaps um, taking you know second place behind security when it comes to priorities for the city. Whereas from the West's understanding of Hong Kong, it is yeah. clear that um, there are many who genuinely, okay, not, not out of ill will or ulterior motives, who genuinely believe that Hong Kong worked best and was best when it adhered to basically the sort of post-handover default in a status quo, mm. whether it was, in their eyes, minimal interference from Beijing. And yet it's also worth remembering that it is this sort of laissez-faire, hands-off approach of neoliberalism that gave rise to the stark, radical housing and social economic inequalities in Hong Kong. You've got people living in caged homes as a result of an inability and a part of the government to actually deliver public housing and also powerful lobbying groups and interest groups behind the scenes there. And above all, whilst sure, Hong Kong prior to 19 and 20 might have seemed and looked you know, innocuously international and almost rootless in many ways, the fact was that we didn't in Hong Kong understand the political yeah. realities we were in and therefore were ill-equipped uh, to deal with the tumultuousness and also the volatile events and calamities that came as a result of yeah. that. So it really feels like Hong Kong is struggling. I think the bigger existential question here is that what we see is one-sided influence, right, of China influencing Hong Kong. But you you posit actually that Hong Kong can be a force of good. Hong Kong could potentially be that interesting influence to China, but we don't see that happening, isn't it? Well, firstly, I think the parts of mainland China's influences in China that are on Hong Kong that are not entirely bad. So, for instance, greater mm. integration into the Greater Bay Area, a genuine sense of you know cultural uh, enrichment and also nourishment with the connections that we can now foster towards and with Chinese culture. And also, the fact of the matter is, China remains, like it or not, the second largest economy in nominal terms in the world today. And that it is in virtue of that, as opposed to despite that, that Hong Kong is so attractive to most international investors and businesses. And and yet, yes, I do believe, right, Philip, that Hong Kong can play a role in supporting and also advancing, you know, institutional experimentation, reform and progress 
in China, ranging from, for instance, the law, where as the only or amongst a few common law jurisdictions in China and one of the two SARs in China, Hong Kong can play the role of being a sandbox, of being an exemplar of what an ideal rule of law that is internationally embedded and recognised could look like and how that could then be used to supplement you know, China's domestic judicial and legal reforms. Alternatively, our low-tax system and high levels of you know, capital freedom and minimal capital controls, I mean, that's precisely the model that China is transplanting to and also seeking to replicate in Hainan mm. uh, with the closing down of the island for a complete overhaul in 2025, as well as experimental zones, as you see right now, in Nansha and other parts of the Greater Bay Area. So in, in my humble opinion, Hong Kong needs to step up. We need to regain our mojo. And the best means of doing so is to articulate very clearly to Beijing why the institutional and cultural distinctiveness of our city is so integrally important, not just to the 7.5 million people of Hong Kong, but to the entire country, because it shows a path that China could take as it seeks to become more globalized and more internationally friendly and open to investors and friends, including from countries and partners that it doesn't traditionally consider or call friends. And I believe Hong Kong has a role to play there. Yeah, so to rebuild and regain Hong Kong's mojo, I mean, one of the things you posit is that it has to be an active proponent of really trade, especially with ASEAN. But it's a really tough order, isn't it, when you have to compete with the likes of Singapore? How does Hong Kong, you know, distinguish itself from Singapore in order to regain its mojo? So I do not see at all Hong Kong and Singapore as competitive rivals. To me, they are, in fact, uh, functional complementaries with very (laughs) similar underlying structures. Hong Kong is China's most international and world-facing city. It primarily services China, but also those seeking to engage and work with China. Mm. Singapore, on the other hand, is a sizable, prominent, preeminent hub in Southeast Asia that caters to Southeast Asia, but also Western companies are seeking to gain a foothold now uh, within Asia, so to speak. And yet, within ASEAN, we also see the rise of other financial and economic centres, Jakarta in Indonesia, or maybe Nusantara in 20 years' time, right? And then in the case of Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. Again, these are all up-and-coming or already incredibly established financial centres with whom I firmly believe Hong Kong must seek constructive synergy as opposed to typifying itself as a rival or competitor. But more Mm. concretely, I'm a massive bull on ASEAN. I'm incredibly bullish on on this part of the world because I believe with its young and vivacious population uh, 660 million a fantastic proximity and geographical situatedness but also a genuine thirst and craving for uh, experimentalism for innovation and for digitalization these are all virtues of the region that render this the market that Hong Kong must you know pivot towards as opposed to merely leaning exclusively into the mainland or alternatively depending upon on, you know, traditional Western partners and friends. Not saying that our friends in the West don't matter. I mean, American companies, European firms, UK and British investment banks remain core pillars of Hong Kong's economic success that we cannot neglect and cannot write off. But at the same time, it is high time that Hong Kong took ASEAN seriously and thought about not just bridging China and ASEAN, which frankly China and ASEAN countries can already do on their own per bilateral and multilateral agreements, but instead, how can Hong Kong add value 
to ASEAN countries? How could it be that in lieu of causing brain drain or an exodus of talents from Southeast Asia, we become a training ground for the wonderful, you know, uh, packed with excitement, brimming with anticipation talents in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in Singapore, Vietnam, Philippines, and so forth, bring them to Hong Kong, provide them with platforms to grow, and then eventually they can come back to Malaysia, to Thailand, and all these other ASEAN countries to contribute towards domestic development. To me, it's not a zero-sum game. It's a positive sum and a virtuously reinforcing cycle. And that's why, in my humble opinion, ASEAN is the future for Hong Kong. Brian, thank you so much. Let's hope that Hong Kong really, truly regains its mojo back in the studio with me, Dr. Brian Wong, Assistant Professor at the Department of Philosophy at the University of Hong Kong. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.